Miracy. People like working with people they like. And if the team is happy, people will want to be on that team. They'll want to stay on that team. You know, it builds community. It builds trust. I'm more likely to go the extra mile for someone I like and vice versa. Welcome. I'm Sharon Richmond, and this is To Lead as Human. For more than 30 years, I've run a business called Leading Large. I help C-level executives expand their impact clarify their priorities, energize their organizations, and build cultures of accountability and respect. In this podcast, we help you envision how to supercharge your leadership by introducing you to executives who lead with intention. These top business leaders exemplify the principles of leading large. They know that as leaders, the positional influence they have comes with an equal measure of responsibility. These leaders not only deliver stellar value to their customers, clients, and stakeholders, They also prioritize building organizations that provide purpose, meaning, and a healthy environment for their employees. We learn from the challenges and successes they've experienced on their human journey. My guest today is Rachel Masiris. Rachel is the Vice President of Global Content Curation at Paramount+. Plus. She has more than 15 years as a builder and leader of multi-platform teams, including an entire department from the ground up, comprised staff of up to 90 people. Through her career, Rachel has guided the creation of digital platforms from apps to websites for iconic brands such as Paramount Plus, Viacom, Comedy Central, BET Plus, and others. She's also played a key senior role on the leadership team that is driving Paramount's transformation to a digital-first media enterprise. If you're a regular listener, you'll know we've had guests from many different industries already, but not yet from major media. So I'm especially excited today that Rachel will be sharing lessons learned from her extensive experience in this industry, including how she stopped herself from micromanaging and why it's important for her team members and her to have fun with their work and with each other. Welcome to the show, Rachel. It's a treat to have you here today. Thank you, Sharon. So let's start with a little bit of history, leadership history, as you've worked your way through your notable brands, so many really well-known brands. So before I worked in media, I owned a store for seven years. Um, A store? A a store. I was a shopkeeper. It was out on the North Fork of Long Island in a beach community. And I sold home goods and gifts and, you know, stuff you don't need, right? Yeah. And that was like my first foray in really being a leader. And I was pretty bad at it, um, (laughs) to be honest. I was a total micromanager. I was very specific about how I wanted everything to be done and how it had to look. And it was exhausting. And it wasn't fun, frankly. And I got burned out. And um, I went to a baby shower. I decided to sell a store. I didn't know what I was going to do next. I went to a baby shower in Manhattan and started chatting with a woman I went to college with who worked at Comedy Central. And she told me about some opportunities so I was working at Comedy Central and they're in what we were calling the digital media team. And we didn't have full episodes at that point. We only had clips. Social media was not really a thing. Um, Facebook was still only available to college students. Uh, I don't, YouTube didn't exist. It was really like in this very early, early infancy of, uh, you know, th- this part of the business. And we were kind of left to our own devices. The, the, 
the company wasn't really paying attention much to what we were doing. They were mostly just focused on making TV, putting things on television. Yeah. So we got to do a lot of really cool things. And I worked on roasts and then I eventually landed on the dailyshow.com and the colbertreport.com or Colbert Nation was the website. The Earl. And that was pretty crazy. I remember those early days. They were fun, 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 and really crazy. Very so crazy. that must have been a blast. Yeah, we were doing games. We had all these weird uh, integrated marketing projects that we were doing. It was kind of like a there, there were no rules. We were just kind of making it up as we went along. And that was really where I think I became a true leader. I still think I have a lot to learn, but leading those teams, learning how to work with folks at the shows and negotiating with our ad sales teams and those, those interpersonal relationships, that was really like, you know, I learned as I did it. I made it up as I went along and uh, that's where I cut my teeth. That's really exciting. And so from there, then what was the rest of that trajectory like? Over time, I moved into a more operational role. In the beginning, we did everything, right? We did social media. We did made, we made content. We, as I said, we made games. We did integrated marketing. We did all these, these different, uh, we wore many, many hats. And over time, roles became much more specialized and then we had dedicated product people and then we had dedicated, you know, dedicated people doing all these different roles. And I moved into a more operational role and then over time took over the operations for many of our websites at Viacom. So that was where I branched out beyond Comedy Central. So really you were you were running a startup. You were going through the regular stages that a startup goes through of figuring out the product offering finding a way to make it fit with what the market wanted, and then starting to uh, go from being those generalists into kind of more specific roles. Yeah. I mean, I've been there for 17 years. So watching that change and um, seeing how people have become much more, much more specialized within, even people who've been there longer than me, evolving. So there's always been something new to learn, always something new to try. And that's made it very gratifying because it's not like, you know, prescribed role. It's a constantly evolving thing. I mean, advice I give to some of the young folk who ask for it <laughs> is, you know, there's a lot of different opportunities. There isn't a clear path in this industry yet. It's still changing. So if something comes along that looks like you have affinity for it, something that you're interested in, raise your hand, volunteer because you're not going to necessarily get that opportunity in other industries, whereas this, this is still an industry where that is very much possible. And that's how I, that was one of the reasons why I was able to be successful was that I kept raising my hand and saying, that looks cool. Let me try that. You know, and I was lucky enough that I had bosses who were willing to give me those opportunities, which not everybody, you know, not everybody has. And most industries, it's a very clear, like you, you are an associate, then you get to become a partner and then, you know, you move yeah. your way through the ranks. It's not the case. So you were in this operational path. And then how did you go from there? So Viacom merged or remerged because they were one company that they then split, that they then remerged with CBS. And several people I was working with on the Viacom brands were tapped to launch what we were now going to be calling Paramount Plus internationally. And, and then the pandemic hit. And we did that totally remotely. Um, and was that was pretty wild. So they rebranded CBS All Access and we launched in LADAM in Brazil, uh, in the Nordics 
we relaunched in Australia and then Canada and the US rebranded to Paramount Plus. And yeah, so we were getting to know colleagues from the CBS side who we never met in person. We were learning new systems. We were figuring it out on the fly. It was pretty intense. While everyone else was laying on their couches, surfing and looking for what to watch, you were out there making the new stuff to watch happen. Right. We were prepping. And, you know, there was a lot of skepticism about, uh, oh, do we need another service out there? And I think we have really like gone beyond people's expectations. It's been quite a crazy, you know, couple of years. And now we're in nine regions. And so your current role, just a, a quick snippet of what are you currently responsible for? So we work with various stakeholders, uh, our programming teams, our marketing teams. They choose what the content is and they choose how they want to frame the content. So we're not responsible for strategy. We're not responsible for saying like this show is the show we're going to you know focus on. We take their priorities and we program our websites and apps to reflect those priorities so that when a user goes to ParamountPlus.com, um, they can find what they're looking for on the homepage or they can go to a landing page, basically putting the content on the platforms so that folks can watch it. It's an interesting industry. There's still so much. I think we haven't really seen much consolidation yet. So it's pretty fascinating. Yeah. And, you know, working at a company that has this, you know, Paramount Pictures, you know, this vast IP is really fascinating. You know, when you think about so many iconic stories have come out of this this company, which I didn't really appreciate fully um, or enough, you know, and between CBS, Showtime, Paramount Pictures, all the Viacom brands, it's pretty amazing. What was one of the most surprising things you discovered in that category of content? I'd forgotten that Titanic was a Paramount Pictures movie. Um, And so, you know, the anniversary came up and then they did a show called The Offer. It's all about the making of The Godfather. And it's really good. I highly recommend it's a miniseries. And what they went through to get that movie made was absolutely insane. It's a crazy story. Um, I have to watch that. I will not ruin it for you, but it involves the real mafia. Like, it's a really amazing. And just looking at Hollywood through that lens of that era is very cool. That's wonderful. So you're at this place now. You've been in a leadership role for quite a while. Standing today, how would you describe your leadership philosophy or your approach? I try to be very transparent. I try to be clear and honest. And I don't want to, I mean, I've had bosses that kept things very close to their chest. And I probably sometimes share too much information or my thought process, maybe not information, but more of like how I'm thinking about things, because I feel like it's important for everyone to understand why I'm making a decision I'm making. So trying to be transparent, because I was such a terrible micromanager and I was so miserable, like trusting that people are smart and are good at their jobs is super important. And when someone makes a mistake, using that as an opportunity to figure out what happened, like what went wrong. And, you know, it's like, as long as I feel like you have done something, the right intention, and that you did your due diligence, and you weren't just like being lazy or thoughtless, I don't mind if people make boo-boos. I mean, that's how you learn. And that's how you figure out there are maybe process problems, or there's some hole in how you're doing things. I think making mistakes is actually, you know, maybe not underrated, but I think that they can be very valuable. 
I, they're certainly under under leveraged a lot of times. Yes, exactly. And when you run an operations team, you know, all we have is process, right? Like that's yeah. that's it. So if something doesn't work um, or doesn't go as smoothly, okay, let's look at why. What can we do to fix that? And sometimes it's just simply tweaking it or or slightly adjusting. Sometimes you kind of have to throw the whole thing out the window and start start over again. Mm. Like, why was that mistake made? What what piece was missed? Um, oh, we we didn't have the correct way to track this information. Okay, how do we track that information? That that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And you know, our biggest concern and worry is is content going up at the right time? Right, can't go up too early, but can't go up late. Right, it's gotta. And we all know the internet is not like perfect timing. Right, there's it's a it's a little bit more of a it's an art more than a science. So making decisions about when things should be made available so that they're there when the users are expecting it. And sometimes there are rights issues, like we have to take something down because there's some problem or some concern. And you know, you just have to be very flexible because. Mm. Um, you might do a ton of work and then somebody might say, oh, wait, we can't do X, Y, and Z because of these issues. And, you know, you have to stop what you're doing and wait. Sometimes you need to pull content down for whatever reason. And Mm. you have to be able to pivot and have processes in place that allow you to do that in an efficient way. Yeah, I just am thinking we're recording this just the week after the the problems with Silicon Valley Bank. And I think we had a big lesson in the last few weeks about release of information and how quickly... It can spread virally to create really terrible right. problems that weren't exactly were a little under anticipated, let's say, but certainly right. unintended. Right. So exactly. Yeah. yeah. And you don't want people misinterpreting right. a decision that's being made for whatever reason. And I've seen that happen over the years, like, you know, an innocent choice is made. And then there's all this like chatter around like, why, why, blah, blah, blah. It's like, none of that is true, right? Like you're like, People are just projecting onto what, in your point, my very innocent situation. Um, obviously, nothing <laughs> to the magnitude of a bank failure, but it's interesting how you know people can yeah. misinterpret things so quickly, and that is definitely something we want to avoid as much as possible. Yeah, and you've got the speed of access of the internet that's behind everything you're doing, and so that must be right. something that always needs to be top of mind for your teams. Right. So uh, transparent trusting the people that you hire in with their expertise, making yeah. sure people understand the why. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anything else that you think is kind of core? I think having a, I mean, I have, I think I have a good sense of humor, right? I try to keep things light and have levity because we're not curing cancer. And what we are doing is bringing people joy, right? Like what we do makes people happy. And so while we want to do a really excellent job, and we want people to have a good experience when they are accessing the content that should be making them happy. And also, we need to just sometimes like take a breath and like say, okay, like let's not get crazy and let's not get too stressed out and let's have a breath. Like we've been going to the office a couple of days a week and there was this big table sitting where our cubicles are. And I was like, we should do a puzzle. And so somebody brought in a 3000 piece SpongeBob SquarePants and so the team like periodically will take like i'll walk past there and the big three or four people working on the puzzle i'll go off and come back they're gone like it's just like a little thing like we don't work in a gulag we work at an entertainment Mm. company we should be having fun yeah like we work with fun content we should be having a good time and i imagine if people aren't having fun that somehow gets telegraphed through 
Right. I'm not sure how, but I can only I imagine know. that yeah. it does. Right. I've made that well, up. That's completely fictitious, but that just makes right. sense to me. Well, and also like work is work, right? It's serious. You know, you're getting paid for a reason, like blah, blah, blah. But if it's miserable, what difference does it make? If it's your dream job and you hate everybody you work with and you hate what, you know, waking up in the morning with dread, like that's awful. Like why? I'd rather, yeah. I'd rather dig ditches with fun people than work in a dream job with miserable people. So I want to be around people I want to be around. So it sounds like there's a principle there as well about connecting people who work with each other somehow. So what, what would you say there? Right. I think, you know, there's a line, obviously these are your colleagues. These are not your friends. So there's, that is, and I, I think that is important to keep in mind, but I think that people like working with people they like. And if the team is happy, people will want to be on that team. They'll want to stay on that team. You know, it builds community, it builds trust. And having those relationships, not just within the folks who are working together day to day, but with people that they're working, you know, the, the adjacent teams, right? The folks that we are working with very closely, I'm more likely to go the extra mile for someone I like and vice versa. How is your leadership approach or philosophy changed over the arc of your career? So I know you said you used to micromanage and that was important for you to quit, but anything else that you think might have shifted? I think I spent a lot of time trying to prove myself. Earlier on? Earlier on. Yeah. And as I've gotten older, I realized that my ego really is irrelevant in the grand scheme of things. I mean, not to make light of what I contribute, but if I get hit by a bus tomorrow, like they would, they would be fine. <laughs> they, <laughs> they would survive fine without me. You know, I think um, I wanted credit, like I wanted credit and that was really important to me. And now that is not that as important to me. I feel like if my team is functioning and doing a great job and if I'm not hearing from people, that's a good thing, right? Like usually when I'm getting that phone call or that text or whatever, there's a problem. And if I'm not hearing from people, that means things are good. Whereas before I wanted, I wanted the pad, I constantly needed that, you know, like the thumbs up, you know, or either, either in meetings or in emails or whatever. If I was accidentally left off of something, I would get really offended. Mm. Um, that stuff is just not as important to me as it used to be. And how do you think your own personal growth has affected? Like, what is, how do have you changed such that it is less important to you now? I think as I've gotten older and, you know, realizing that we all contain multitudes, right? Like as I've gotten older and I've thought more and more about things that are important to me, my job is important to me. I want to do a good job. I want to be a good colleague. I want to be a good boss. I want to be a good employee, but it's not the only thing, right? Like it's, it's, it's one big, but a facet of, of who I am. It is my identity is not as tied up in that. And you know, when people ask me what I do, I'm like, oh, you know, like. You don't tell them you're an executive at Paramount Plus? No. I mean, I, I was like, oh, I work at Paramount. Oh, what do you do? Oh, I work at Paramount Plus. Oh, what do you do? And it's just like, I don't, don't want to talk. It's like pulling out and I'm not being humble. I just, it's like, I don't really want to talk about it because it's just, it's what I do. I'm proud. I feel like I do a good job and I'm very proud of my team. I have a great team. Whereas before it was like, this is what I do. This is what I'm working on. This is what it was very much about like that. I'd rather talk about a book you're reading. Like I'd rather, because I, I, being a workaholic is not like, again, going back to having joy, like being a workaholic's miserable and not, you know, who wants to hang out with that person? I don't. 
I did that kind of work for a few years and it just is so soul sucking. It just yeah. is miserable. And I, I think it's a healthy, yeah. ba- what I'm hearing you say is there's a healthy balance to what creates your self-identity and that it yep. has become, and this I think does happen as we age. I hope it happens for everyone, but it certainly happens for a lot of people. I know that we start to be a little more comfortable with ourself, what we're good at, what we're not good at. We accept right. our own flaws a little better, maybe. And it yep. becomes less important to get someone else's approval. Exactly. And uh, so I wish I could figure out how we could learn that earlier in our lives. I don't know how, but. Yeah. Like, I think there's some people. If anyone does. Right. Exactly. Because I just think some people have that younger. It's like just something that's part of their DNA. I certainly did not. And, you know, I had a couple of colleagues over the years that I felt like they just navigated things so well. Like they just, it just seemed natural how they could just. And so I started trying to emulate that a little bit. And then I was like, oh, this feels good. This is actually healthy feeling, whereas the other stuff felt less so. Before I was like, I want to be in that conductor seat 24-7. It's like, yeah. you know, it's not that important. Maybe you let somebody else do that occasionally. And I think that goes back to the micromanaging, you know, wanting to control every aspect, having an opinion about every single aspect. It's not that critical. You don't always... You know, somebody once said to me, so you win the battle, but you lose the war. Right. Um, you get so caught up in those minutiae things that you've lost, you know, forest for the trees kind of situation. And that was a hard lesson, but I'm trying to, to, to live that. It's a great lesson also if you can kind of pass it on to your team members, because I think it's valuable for them as well not to get too caught up in it. So right. how, how exactly. do you do that? How do you do that now with your team? Well, you know, I do often, like when they start to get really praised about things, I'm like, okay, like, let's put this in perspective. I try to sort of play devil's advocate to them sometimes. Sometimes they're right. Something is really important and really critical. And like, okay, let's hunker down and figure this out. But sometimes I'll play devil's advocate. And I'm like, why is this important? Like, why are you like, we have to do it this way? Or why isn't this person doing it? It's like, what difference does it make in the grand scheme of things? Right? Like, is it really game changing? Is it really going to like revolutionize how we do things? Like, why is this so critical to you? And often they can't, they can't answer why they just think it should be done the way they want to do it. But sometimes you just have to take the loss and move forward. Um, and knowing when to pick those battles is, I mean, it's tough, but they're, you know, it's like, I'm not going to go to bat for this because it's not worth the effort. But if it is, I will. And it's also not worth the social capital sometimes. Exactly. If it's really six of one, half a dozen of the other, and it's really just a question of opinion, and sometimes you have to let the other person win, even though you think you're right. What you're mentioning is so important. It reminds me of like so many executives who feel like they have to define not just the what needs to be done, but the how. Right. And it doesn't matter. Exactly. Right. And when you don't try to micromanage the how, I think your your people tend to have, they develop better ways of thinking. They develop their own confidence. And so it does have some, again, resonant benefits. So uh, since your career's been pretty much in media, at least for a very long time, what do you think are some unique characteristics of leading in the industry, if there are any? I mean, we are dealing with very time-sensitive content most of the time, right? It's not something that you can sort of sit on or let percolate or whatever, like it, you know, this is stuff that it's very driven by marketing and dates. And so as a technical, like a technology part, 
that's tough because everybody wants to be agile and like, well, no, this thing has to premiere on this date. So this thing has to launch by this time. So that is a unique thing to our industry. You're dealing with a lot of creative people. And this is not something I deal with in my current job, but in my previous job, like, you know, where you're working with a show or a program, you're working with these very creative people who have very distinct ideas about how they want their content presented and, you know, shown. So you had to try to understand the voice and the, like where they were coming from and all of that, which is very challenging. And I have to guess there's ego involved with some of those folks as well. So you're probably, you know, sensitive to their reputation, how they want to be branded. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. And some of them were way involved and some were very not involved. So sort of understanding that when you were coming into working on a new project was obviously a big part of it. And you're dealing with properties that are beloved, Mm. right? Like you are a steward of beloved content um, that people feel very strongly about and identify very strongly with. And that is a big responsibility There is something very identity, core to one's identity to sort of think about those things that are so, feel so resonant with who you are, you know, what you choose to consume as entertainment has a lot to do with who you are. It's how you bond with friends, right? Like I like this show, you like that show. We, we have that affinity together. That's how people find kinship is through the content they consume, the music they listen to, the, you know, the books they read, the shows they watch. So thinking over the arc of your journey, is there an example or two of a specific leadership challenge that you faced that has been pivotal to shaping your leadership perspective or to your growth? Well, as an employee, something that this was, again, in a job I had before I owned the store, um, I had a boss accuse me, <laughs> accuse me of being organized and I was lazy in the name of being efficient. That essentially she thought that my efforts to improve process were because I actually was lazy. And it was such a bizarre thing to say to me. I was speechless, Sharon. I was like, what? Like, what? Are you? And I just walked out of her office. I was like, I don't even know what to say to that. I was like, um, no, <laughs> okay. And I just, I just left her office and I, that happened, oh my God, 20 something years ago. And I still think about that moment of standing in her office and her saying that to me and maybe just being absolutely gobsmacked and like rendered speechless. Um, I hope I've never done that to anybody who's worked for me. Um, but it was like, it's such a lesson in somebody projecting something onto me. Right. Like I was like, oh, Mm. like in in retrospect, I was like, what was going on there? Like I was just she was just throwing at me. I just happened to be the person that got splattered that day. Like um, and so that was that was that's something I've thought about a lot is like keep your garbage to yourself. Don't project on other people. And I'm sure I've violated that. I'm sure I've done things where like in like I'm sure somebody maybe is sitting there going, remember when Rachel said that stupid thing to me? And, you know, (laughs) So that has informed me as a leader, that weird experience of like that weird encounter, just being also mindful of what you're saying to somebody. And to her, she probably doesn't even remember that she said it. But to me, that's, I still think about it to this day. So I'm sure that's affected the way that you give feedback to your team members. So can you share some of that? I did some leadership training 
years ago. And I remember the biggest takeaway for me was never equivocate. Always be super clear when you're giving feedback and make sure that what you're saying is actually the feedback you're trying to give, right? And so I try to remove emotion from from feedback. I try to, like, if I'm feeling heated about something, I'm like, don't talk about it now. Put it on the back burner. Look at it more dispassionately, right? So you're not reacting. And and rather than trying to frame it in a way that might tr- to soften it or to make it more fuzzy or whatever, like that's too much in the other direction, right? So trying to strike that balance of like, I'm trying to be super clear. I'm telling you exactly what it is from my perspective. This is what I'm seeing so that there's no possibility for misinterpretation, but also from a place of kindness, right? Like I'm giving you this feedback because I think A, you need to hear it and B, this is going to help you be better at your job. Yeah. Um, and, to, you know, and uh, yeah, but not saying things out of like an impulsive like moment, which again, this boss was clearly annoyed with me for whatever reason, said what she said. Very wise. So um, I'm just thinking about the transition that you went through right at the beginning of the pandemic and suddenly having everybody working remotely. And I know a lot of our listeners are currently having challenges thinking about building connection with their distributed teams. So with with this increase in remote and hybrid work, how did you nurture the relationships and shape the culture in your group? It was really hard. And there was obviously, it wasn't just the pandemic, there was BLM, there was, you know, violence against um, AAPI, there was a lot of stuff happening in society. So you're sitting there in a meeting and you're talking about getting SpongeBob SquarePants translated into different, you know, into Brazilian Portuguese and Latin American Spanish. And then like, meanwhile, Twitter feeds blowing up with some other like horrible thing. And so we did a lot of like casual gatherings online that, you know, were just open. There was never an agenda. Um, I would usually just say like, look, we can just sit here quietly. Um, If people want to talk, they can talk. We can talk about what'd you make for dinner last night? Like um, just giving people an opportunity to like turn that pressure valve off. But yeah. And then when things started to look like, okay, maybe we can start going back into the office. So we're, we're, most of us are hybrid and we're going in in New York two days a week. And I have to say, like, it's been really lovely, like, oh, seeing people and, you know, um, having those one-on-one conversations, overhearing things, you know, like, oh, there was a conflict between these two people and you just overheard a snippet of it. That I, you know, I wouldn't have heard that or been aware of that sitting in my apartment um, on a Zoom. Um, and that, I think, was also, like, when there was tension, when people were having some issues, it's much harder to facilitate, you know, resolution because a lot of people never met. I think a lot of people buried themselves in their work, frankly. So are there practices that emerged during that period of time that you're still leveraging with your team? I think for me, like that was sort of the really final tipping point of like, there's other stuff happening in the world other than like, you know, you, (laughs) you know, it kind of forced like me to get rid of a lot of that, like really stripped a lot of my ego out. It was so humbling, you know, what was happening. And I was so lucky. I had a very good job and I had stability and I had access to healthcare. And I worked for a company that, you know, was mindful of all of this. I had interesting work that kept me busy. And I know a lot of people did not have that. And that um, was very, very humbling. Um, 
And that was something that I tried to say to my team without being like, you should be grateful for the, you know, (laughs) but more like, we're so lucky that we have each other. And we're so lucky that this is where we work, you know, and I was grateful for them, you know. Um, But yeah, that was, that was unique. And, you know, made me think a lot about the pandemic in 1918. And what my grandparents went through and how they never talked about it. And like reflecting, reflecting back on that and like, you know, what was that like? And again, feeling very grateful that I was here and not there. So I'm hearing two things really. One is the power of gratitude for, and particularly the gratitude for connection and community. And the other is perspective taking. And I do think for executives that perspective taking often is much undervalued in terms of how to maintain your equilibrium is to zoom out a little and look at something from a a different vantage point than you might normally. So, and that's one of the values of the media products, right? Is that we watch shows and seek entertainment that helps us broaden our perspective on the world too. So that must also have felt, I think, somewhat valuable. I don't know if you'd stop to think about it, but. Well, I was appreciative of the fact that a lot of people were availing themselves of our, of our products because they were stuck at home and watching a lot of television. And so that was like, okay, like what, you know, like, you know, I talked to friends who like work in the medical field or like, I was like, well, what you're doing actually matters. Like one of my best friends is an epidemiologist. And I was like, what you do actually matters. And she's like, no, no, no. What you do matters. She's like, cause when I stop working, I then turn on my television and I'm now watching, you know, South Park or whatever. And that is my solace from, you know, leaving that. And I was like, okay, I can be appreciative. I could appreciate that part of it. Because again, it's hard to think about like how you have that direct impact on those, on, on those customers, you know? Um, yeah. And, and then I was like, oh yeah, these folks actually are really are relying on what we are doing because they, they need to be distracted. They need to be entertained. And really knowing your market that intimately and really thinking about who are the individual people And what are they benefiting from? I think that also is something that the more senior you become as an executive, sometimes it's hard to put yourself in the position of that individual customer. So that's a good reminder for our folks too. Right. And trying to think about like, well, what what did I want to do when I was turning off my computer for the day and shutting down Zoom? I wanted to watch something that was maybe not so heady. You know, I I realized that like I was reading a lot of genre fiction, like, you know, mysteries and, and I was watching a lot of sci-fi. Like I was, I was consuming things to serve as this escape. And I was like, oh yeah, that's why, that's why I do what I do is I, you know, give people that opportunity to have that escapism. And again, I think that highlights the importance of knowing the purpose of what we do for work and being able to connect with that purpose. So this yes. is very rich conversation, Rachel. It's very fun. <laughs> so I want to just switch gears a little bit and, and uh, mm-hmm. start to wrap up a bit. So, you know, the title of this podcast is To Lead as Human. And I always like to ask, what does that mean to you as a leader, to lead as human? Well, I mean, I think humans look for people to, to follow, right? We are a pack community, like animal, and we look to others. I mean, that's some of the best part of us and that's some of the worst part of us, right? Like we sometimes following a leader's devastating and terrible, but sometimes it's really powerful. And to be human is to be fallible and to be messy sometimes and to make mistakes and owning those mistakes, you know, apologizing when I've made a mistake. 
Um, I've never had a boss apologize to me, but I've apologized to, to my team when I feel like I made a mistake. Mm. Like I've, I have a tendency to be glib, make jokes sometimes. You know, you think you're leavening the moment and sometimes that's that was not what was required. Uh, it was tonally not really advisable. Um, but yeah, I think people want to follow people and they want to know that that person is not a robot. And that's what I think of when I hear delete as human. I want to know that there's meat and bones behind that person who's telling me, I need you to march into this fire and I have empathy and I understand what you're doing. Like go, you know, like that to me is much more compelling then you must do this. It is your job. Um, that That is not inspiring to me because <laughs> I am a robot. I'm going to start talking like that in meetings. Oh, gosh. You're actually reminded me of a really funny moment off of uh, RuPaul's Drag Race from one of the, uh, from one of the, uh, what do they call it when they do the, the snatch game? Sorry, guys, if you don't know what I'm talking about, you can write to me and I'll tell you. And you can watch it on Paramount Plus. Oh, and you can watch it on Drag Paramount Race. Plus. <laughs> yes. Yeah. We get to a certain point in our leadership and we forget what it's like when we were younger. So if you, you know, what would you say to your younger self, like back in the beginning of your time at Viacom, what would you have told yourself that, that might be most helpful for your future success? What I tell myself, I would tell myself to not take it so seriously. I remember my mother saying once to me, she said, you don't work in a glove factory at the turn of the century. Like, (laughs) it's such a weird thing to say. She's like, you work at Comedy Central, right? Like, lighten up. And I was like, (laughs) but it's so in this and blah, blah. And she was like, just, you're not, you know, you're not working at the Triangle Shirt Factory. Like, let's get a little perspective. (laughs) You know, you're, you know, and I have to say, like, my, my, my parents' families were very blue collar very, you know, manual labor. What a lucky life I've had. I got to, you know, I get to sit in an office and watch TV for, <laughs> that, that's my job. I mean, if you could really get in a time machine, like telling my, you know, great grandparents, like, okay, this is what I do. Would they just be like, what, are, what are you talking, like, what? Like, this is the American dream. Like, <laughs> but yeah, I think telling me to not take it so seriously and to enjoy it, Um, Because I've gotten to do some very cool things and I've gotten to meet some really interesting people. So I wonder if you have a thought as we wrap up, Rachel, what piece of advice you might offer for executives who want to still lead as fully human right now and are doing so in this extra stressful time? Yeah, well, I think giving your team the ability to say, I can't deal with this right now or I need to check out, right? You don't want them shirking their responsibility or dumping their work on other people. But if you're going through a moment, whatever it is, personal, you know, family members, whatever. And that was also a big part of, I think, COVID was empowering people to take care of themselves and to take care of the people that they care about. I don't think it's worth forcing somebody to feel like they are doing something when they really shouldn't be right. You're sick, stay home from work, like take care of yourself. Like, I used to go to work sick all the time. Everybody did. It's insanity when you think about it. It used to infuriate me when people would come into work sick because I knew I was going to get it. Yeah. And I'd be like, why yeah. didn't you just stay home and like get well? But yeah, 
but I was important, Sharon. I had important things to do. Yes, and of I course. I needed to be there because what would happen yes. if I wasn't there, right? I mean, that, I know. that was the attitude. And I totally subscribed to that. And um, yeah, so that I think is a big takeaway for me is that giving your team the ability, the flexibility to take time when they need it and trusting that they're not taking advantage. Because if they're really good at their jobs, it doesn't matter. It's actually the advice you're, you're offering is remember that your team members are human beings too, and they have lives and support them in the paying attention to their own lives while also recognizing that they're committing to deliver something and go for the balance, go for the interleaving of the two worlds, go for the, uh, I'm not even sure what the right word is, but it's not really balance. It's more integration. Right. Know? Right. Take the that, take the the agency that you have to figure out how to balance the needs in your life personally and professionally so that you have a chance of success at both. Exactly. And if you're distracted because you're worried about something that's happening outside of work, you're not going to be giving me 100%, you know. And so I think that's important and I also think again, if somebody's not doing a good job, and you're mad that they're taking time off. Really, what's the, pr the problem there isn't that you're mad they're taking time off. You're mad that they're not doing a good job. So if someone's doing a good job and they've been given all the tools that they need to be successful and they're being supported, if they come to you and are like, I need to take a couple weeks off, whatever, you know, then that's what they need to do. If someone's taking advantage of you, that's obviously a whole different conversation. But I think trusting that people are doing the right thing that is very freeing for me because I'm not then questioning about whether or not like, oh, that person's taking a lot of time off or blah, blah, blah. Actually, I, I'm often telling my team, like, you need to take more time off. What was the last vacation you took? What was the last, you know, um, and they're like, well, what about you? And I'm like, okay, this is fair enough. Right? Fair <laughs> enough. Like the cobbler who has no shoes, like I, should, I need to take my own advice. But yeah, I mean, I have to say in this last couple of years, it's been more the other way, not people needing to take more time off than they are, because we got into such a working mindset with COVID where it was just head down, work, 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 reminding people there's a world out there. You should leave work to go do stuff, see your families, take vacation, even if it's just a mental health day to just do nothing. Um, that, that is a, that I think has been a good thing that came out of COVID for sure. It's that sort of reminder that like, there's other stuff. I know there are leaders for whom it's very hard to hold on to that trust that people are doing what they should be doing. And that seems to be kind of right. creating a lot of urgency to get people back to the office full time. Yes. And I wonder what your thoughts on that are. How are you finding the ongoing hybrid to work? Do you, what are you finding? I think hybrid is ideal. We've been pretty flexible about how to do it. They've basically said, we'd like your teams to come in two to three days a week, sort of how they laid it out. Mm -hmm. And at first, people were very anti going back, particularly among the younger generation. Those of us with some gray in our hair were like, yeah, get me out of my house. <laughs> like, I can't wait to go somewhere else. Whereas a lot of the younger, like 20 something olds were like, I don't want to come into the office. I want to stay fully remote. And which I thought was fascinating. I was like, being around colleagues is very important. That's how you build relationships. That's how you build network. That's how you have those. It's like, oh, I work with the people I work with. But yeah, but you're not always going to work with those people. You know, you're going to work with other people. 
So I think mandating, like I know some companies are like four days a week, you must come in these days a week. I think that is a little, I mean, I personally would be okay with that, but I think that would be a hard pill to swallow for a lot of, a lot of people. So I think people seem happier with the, with the feeling of a little bit more flexibility and a little bit more autonomy. Um, because I do think it's important to actually physically leave your house once in a while and go out into the world. Well, is, is any last thought that you have, anything you meant to say that you haven't shared yet? Forgive yourself. Mm. You're never going to be perfect. You're going to fuck up a lot of stuff. Yep. And um, apologize where and when it's appropriate and learn from it. Because <laughs> this is not intuitive stuff. At least wasn't for me. And I think for most people, it is not, it is hard. Um, and uh, yeah, just, just forgive yourself and be kind. No, I, that's just a great place to end. I, I thank you so much, Rachel, for sharing your personal journey and what you've learned and, and for this really insightful conversation today. Well, and thank you for having me on. It's been a really great chatting. Yeah. So Rachel, where can listeners find out more about you and your work if they want to track you down? Or- I'm LinkedIn. Where all the cool kids hang out, yeah. Where all the cool kids hang out. And just spell your last name so folks can find you. M as in Mary, A-C-E-I-R-A-S as in Sam. That is my last name. Please stay with us for a moment and I'll offer some takeaways and coaching tips that will help you improve your own leadership. Hi, this is Sharon. I'm popping in just before the takeaways to remind you that as an executive coach, I'm always looking to support new clients. If you or someone you know might be looking for an executive coach, head over to my website, leadinglarge.com, and you can book a complimentary appointment with me. In the first 25 minutes, we'll be able to identify a challenge you're facing and talk about whether I'm the right fit to work with you. I look forward to hearing from you. There's so much to take away from my conversation with Rachel. I'm especially grateful for how she highlighted three very common leadership challenges that I'll draw your attention to. First, the importance of setting your ego aside when you're leading others, having nothing to prove and much to gain by letting others sometimes take the lead. And she discovered that she could emulate other leaders that she saw leading without ego to improve her own skills at that. Of course, some of that comes with age, and we all know that as we get older, we do tend to take ourselves a little less seriously. Nonetheless, keeping an eye on what role your ego is playing in your own day-to-day leadership is really important. The second very timely issue that we talked about is how do you build a good culture with remote or hybrid teams? Rachel had a really interesting take on this. She does it by cultivating a sense of community, not just team, which, as she pointed out, serves not just to increase trust, but also to build mutual commitment. Rachel noticed that under pressure, people would naturally more quickly help folks that they knew and liked. And with all the time pressure in their industry, she really encourages her team to connect with all the folks they work with, including across functions. From hosting unstructured virtual social times during the shelter-in-place era, to creating a new community space in their office where people can drop by to be part of doing a jigsaw puzzle. She's helping to create community that builds that mutual commitment. 
The third issue, and the one that is truly hard to tackle often, is the problem of micromanaging. Rachel was so candid with us about her own tendency to micromanage, as well as how and why she's taught herself to stop it. First, she saw how it demotivated her own staff way back in her retail days when she tried to define all the details of what they needed to do in their own jobs. And then she realized it was inhibiting her team members from taking more full ownership over their own decision-making and work. And here are her hows. She decided it was important to be very transparent about her own decision-making, sharing the whys that she thought about when she was choosing which path to take. And by doing this gave a great role model to her team members. Next, explaining really clearly the outcome needed and the degree of urgency. Third, and I know this sounds a lot easier to say than it is to do, but it is essential, trust that the people on her team are smart and good at their jobs and will figure out how to do what's needed. Then, if and when they lose perspective, as we all do, jointly problem solve, but don't take over their workflow. And then, if someone does something really differently than she would have, she likes to evaluate with them how well their approach worked and what they can each learn from the other. If you'd like to take a close look at your own micromanaging tendencies and see how you can improve, I have a very simple mantra that you can practice. Three steps only. Specify the why, agree on the what, and delegate the how. As long as you're staying close to your team members and available when they need help, this is one of the best ways that you can hold back your own micromanaging tendencies and really support the growth and development of your team members. I'm Sharon Richmond, and this has been To Lead as Human. You can find out more about me at leadinglarge.com. That's L-E-A-D-I-N-G large.com. To Lead as Human is part of the Miracy FM podcast network which also includes such shows as Soul Savvy Business and Making It. This episode was produced by Cynthia Lamb. Jeff Govertson assembled the episode. Danny Eaney is our executive producer, and post-production was provided by Post Office Sound. So you don't miss upcoming episodes, please follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. And here's the really important part. If you learned something useful today, take a minute and leave us a starred review and tell your colleagues about us. The more leaders we can reach together, the better for everyone. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you the next time on To Lead as Human. I'm Molly Mahoney. I'm Danny Eaney. I'm Virginia Muskies. I'm Melinda Cohen. I'm Dave Lacani. I'm Michael Port, and you're listening to Making Making It. You would think that when you hit the New York Times list or the Wall Street Journal bestseller list, you would feel like you made it. For me, it never has. I think making it can mean whatever you want it to mean for you. Making it is about having time to spend as I want to spend it. Making it really is about being free to live a 
according to your own genuine values and priorities. It's about acceptance. Not only like making money, but make a difference, make a contribution. contribution. Like feeling like I'm making a difference to someone. And I don't think making it is a one and done. I think it's an ebb and flow spiral type of pattern. Making it to me really means being able to bring your whole self to the table. It's really a choice that you make every day. Because the truth is that you do not really know what you're doing until you get started doing it. I'd say that the first seven, maybe eight years was like pushing a boulder up the hill. If there's anything that I could say to my younger self, I would say, really? Like for real, for real? Trust. I would tell myself no shortcuts, no shortcuts. The path is always in front of you, even if it's not clear. The key is to keep moving forward. Everything requires work and effort, no matter how much you love it. You've got to find something that you love, something that you enjoy, so that your work is not a labor, it's not a chore. Don't compare yourself to others. But recognize that if you see someone else doing something that is of interest to you, you can do it also. I had this sensation of, I kind of felt like the walls were shaking and I just felt like, that's what I've been doing all this time. That's who I am. In that moment, I knew who they were. I knew the burdens and distractions and I knew full potential. And then I ended up ultimately in the ultimate Frisbee Hall of Fame as a Johnny Appleseed for taking the sport out to the world. And so I just said to myself, you have to give this a try. If you don't give it a try, you'll spend the rest of your life wondering if you could have done it. The water is always changing, and your comfort with that doesn't come from knowing that there is no uncertainty coming. It comes from trusting in your competence to handle that. I like to say, don't emulate, elevate. That's how you're going to make it. Making It is a weekly podcast brought to you by our team at Miracy. New episodes are available on Spotify, Apple Music, and most anywhere else podcasts are found.